And now we'll look at the passage today. This is in your bulletin. This is on your screen if you're following us on YouTube. And um, I'm going to read this from Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they crowded in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is the word of God. When I preached two weeks ago, I spoke from John's account of the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. This is um, when the disciples were in the boat. Um, They thought they were going to die because the boat was sinking. uh, And Jesus was sleeping on the boats. And today we look at another account uh, of of the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Um, This is soon after the first storm that we looked at at in John's Gospel two weeks ago. And the last sermon was preached with our situation at church in mind. Um, And so is today's message. As you know, things are difficult for us right now. And they will continue to be for a while. But we're not left alone. We have each other, IGC family. We have the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, he specializes in bringing dead things to life. And we have the scriptures. These are the very words of God spoken to us. So this morning, we're going to be listening to the words of God as he speaks to us through the gospel of Matthew. And it's for us to be shaped by his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So... We're looking at this passage in Matthew. And as we get into it, I want us to learn to put our confidence in Jesus and be more devoted worshipers of him. So this is the famous story of Jesus walking on the water. And um, it's pretty, uh, as I was preparing for this message, I just uh, went on YouTube. I typed up uh, Jesus walking on water. And there are scenes of this in movies. And um, there's some like really cute cartoony uh, scenes. Scenes on YouTube, and then there are um, a few from movies. And I don't know how, we don't really know how accurate these depictions are, but uh, as I was watching them, I was just struck by the fact that, man, I've read this story so many times, but when you see it visually, you just go, oh my goodness, this is a really strange thing that we're reading. 
this is a really weird thing that is happening here. And sometimes we just get so used to these stories, but I hope we don't get used to them. Um, one of the greatest gifts God can give us is the gift of curiosity and marvel and wonder. And may we never lose this curiosity and marvel and wonder at what, he spe- what, what happens and what is communicated to us in the scriptures. So let me set the scene for us. So Jesus and the disciples, they've been doing ministry all day long. And this is right after Jesus fed the 5,000. This is in right, um, right before the, today's passage. And it's actually not just 5,000 people that Jesus fed. He actually fed 5,000 men. And then the passage says that this is not including the women and the children. So it could have been up to 20,000 people that Jesus fed before today's passage. And you can imagine for the disciples how intense this day was, how tiring it must have been to distribute 20,000 bread and fish to 20,000 people for them to to manage this massive crowd. So today's passage, it begins with Jesus telling his disciples to go across the sea while he goes up to the mountain to pray. And the disciples, um, these were fishermen, they're familiar with the sea, they begin the journey, and the passage gives us a reference to uh, the time it says when Jesus came to them. Um, so it says on the, on the fourth rock, or during the fourth watch, this is when Jesus approaches the disciples. So the fourth watch, this is between the hours of 3, 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And this means that the disciples have been rowing all night uh, between six and, uh, six and nine hours of no rest. The passage tells us that they were far from shore. Commentators say that they probably rowed out uh, about three miles. They were beaten by the waves. The rowing was far more difficult than usual because the wind was working against them. Now imagine how exhausted these disciples must have been at this point. But they can't stop because they're caught in another storm. They can't stop because if they stop, the wind is going to push them back. And it's going to set them back and it'll erase all the gains that they made in the previous hours. So this is the scene. And as we've said before, Jesus is such a frustrating character. He doesn't do what normal people would do. Jesus knows his disciples are tired even before, he, before they get on the boat. They've been working all day. He doesn't give them a chance to catch their breath. Um, imagine that you're a manager at Target on, on Black Friday. This is the busiest shopping day of the year. And at the end of the day, your team members, they've been on their feet all day long running around helping people, stocking shelves, and they're completely wiped out by the time the doors are closed. Now, what if you were the manager? What would you do? Would you not tell your team members to go home and get some rest? This is what a normal person would do, but not Jesus. Look at the first word of today's passage. It says, immediately, immediately. And why does Matthew include that detail? I think it's to show the reader the intentionality of Jesus' leading of his disciples. He commands them to get into the boat, to row to the other side of the sea. And that may seem really inconsiderate, given all, given all that they've been through. But it's not just inconsiderate of Jesus. It's intentional. Do you remember the first time uh, the disciples came across the stormy sea? This was um, what we spoke on last, uh, two weeks ago. Do you remember what happened when the disciples and Jesus were on the stormy sea? 
Um, what did the disciples confess after they woke Jesus up and after he calmed the waves? This was their confession. They said, the wind and waves obey this man. The wind and waves obey this man. And Jesus is Lord over the wind and the waves and all that happens on the sea. This is what we're taught. And Jesus, as the Lord of the wind and the waves, he knows what his disciples are getting into as he sends them off into the boat. So if you're keeping track, this is what we have. We have tired disciples. We have rough seas. We have physical exhaustion. We have nature working against them. And Jesus tells them, proceed into the water. Why does he do this? It's because Jesus is up to something. He is up to something when things seem like they don't make any sense. Here is an uncomfortable truth for us if we're believers in Jesus. It's this. First, there's the positive aspect. That God will do a work in your life. This is a guarantee. God wants you to become more loving. He wants you to become more patient, more holy, more disciplined, more confident in Him, more honest. And if we truly follow Jesus, these things will happen in our lives, even if it's very slowly. Ephesians 2, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. You are the work of God. That means that God will do his work in you and through you. Philippians 1. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What do these passages tell us? It tells us that God is going to do a work in your life. He's going to transform you. He's going to make you more like Jesus. But the means by which he carries out his objective for your life is almost never the way that you expect. The way that he changes us and shapes us is never what we expect, hardly. Not just us, but our church. How does God change us? It might be through the pits of a miserable marriage or the end of a marriage. It might be through insomnia as you stay up all night long. It might be in the chronic pain. It might be you coming to terms with the fact that you're not going to be able to retire when you thought you would, given the events of the market the past few weeks. It might be you watching the loss of your friendships. And God might be working in you through the heartbreak of watching your church fall apart. For the disciples in today's passage, it's through them being utterly exhausted and still having to row with all their might and being tossed about by the angry sea. So this is the principle for those of us who follow Jesus. To follow Jesus means that we submit to the danger that he puts us in because he will put us in danger. To follow Jesus means that we listen and obey with no guarantee of safety and we embrace the uncertainty and the suffering But we do this with the confidence that Jesus is doing something good and beautiful, even through the rough waters. This is the design of Jesus. This is how life for us works. This is how the life of the church works. And our passage today teaches us about how he shapes his people in these rough waters. How he shapes even indelible Grace Church 
through these rough waters. So three things he says to his fearful disciples in today's passage. Um, these are our three points today. They're in your bulletin. Number one, take heart. Number two, come. And number three, why do you doubt? So the first word that Jesus speaks, take heart, take heart. Again, verse 26, the disciples, they see Jesus walking on the sea. They're terrified. They think it's a ghost. They cry out in fear. Jesus speaks to them saying, take heart, take heart. The disciples, they see this. They're, as you can imagine, terrified, the text tells us. Now, the average, and the the disciples, they are Jewish. The average Jew did not believe in ghosts, but they understood the concept of them because they lived in the, among the Roman culture, the Hellenistic culture. And it was believed uh, in this culture that those who drowned at sea, that they were, they haunted the waters because they died without a proper burial. According to their superstitions, their souls had no hope of crossing the river Styx because they didn't have a coin in their mouth to pay the fare for the crossing. And this could have only happened with a proper burial. So therefore, those who died at sea, they were doomed to wander the seas for eternity. The disciples might have this in mind. They see this figure walking on the water. They think it's a ghost. And they might be thinking that the sight of a ghost is a sign that they too will perish at sea. The text doesn't tell us exactly why. It could have been that. Perhaps they would also be um, like these ghosts on the sea. Um, they would have died. Or maybe it was the sight of a figure calmly walking toward them on the water. Because, of course, who wouldn't be afraid of this? Just imagine if you were walking down the street and you saw a figure just floating along in the sky. Would you not be scared of that? The point is that they're scared out of their minds. They are scared out of their minds. And I appreciate what David shared in the call to worship. Um, We live in a culture of fear. I don't think it's unique. I'm guessing that throughout all of history, people have been fearful. The 20th century was called the age of anxiety by some poets and commentators. And here in the 21st century, how much more so do we not live in fear? Fear of violence, targeted or random. Fear of economic instability. Fear of a fractured nation. Fear of what the politicians will or won't do. Fear of people abandoning us. Fear of the type of world that our children will grow up in or the type of world that we will live in in two months or two years. Fear of aging. Fear of what's going to happen to Indelible Grace Church. What do you fear today? What is at the fear of, what is at the root of our fear? It's this, it's uncertainty. The unknown. We fear things that we have no explanation for. We fear the things that will thrust us into an unknown future. This is why the disciples fear. This is why you and I fear. Because we don't know what's ahead. And when we see things that scare us, we're scared because we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen to us. We don't know what's going to happen to our family members. We don't know what's going to happen to our portfolios or to our church. At the heart of the disciples' fear is that whatever lies ahead of them is not good. It's either death Or whatever it is this ghostly figure would do to them. 
They're scared. And Jesus knows this and he speaks up. He hears their cries. Look at verse 27. First, Jesus sends them out into the water where he knows it's going to be hard for them. Verse 27, but immediately, as soon as Jesus hears, his cry, hears their cries, immediately he responds, take heart. The full phrase in today's passage is this, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Like David said, uh, the most repeated command in the Bible is, do not fear, do not fear, because why? That is one of the things we experience the most is fear. The reason is because when people come in contact with God or a messenger of God, their first response is fear. And this is a proper response. When mortal man comes in contact with an immortal God, with the immortal God, or when sinful man comes before the holy God, it should be absolutely terrifying because you realize this is not just another version of me. This is not a better version of me. This is not a higher version of me. This is a completely different being. And I should be afraid. But we're told over and over, do not fear. Be not afraid. Because until you can get over the terror type of fear, you cannot engage properly with God. The disciples know that they're confronted with something terrifying. And yet yet they're told not to fear. Jesus wants them to understand that he's coming toward them. That he's speaking to them. That he will care for them. Jesus leads the disciples into the rough seas. And there is a purpose that Jesus leads us to where we are. Jesus intends for us to be exactly where we are in this moment. Don't waste the opportunity to hear what he's saying to you. Our tendency is to distract ourselves. Because we don't like to hear the things that Jesus is saying to us, maybe. Or our tendency might be to numb ourselves. Because we don't want to feel these negative emotions. But when we realize that Jesus is with us, when we realize that Jesus has led us to where we are, then what do we do? We listen. We feel what we're feeling. The Bible gives us words to express our feelings when we can't. This is the book of Psalms. We see it through the situation We feel all that we're supposed to feel. We don't try to suppress these feelings. We listen. Um, Frederick Buechner, he has this quote. He says this, Listen to your life. All moments are key moments. There is no event so commonplace but that God is present within it. Always, hiddenly, always leaving you room to recognize him or to not recognize him. But all the more fascinatingly because of that, all the more compellingly and hauntingly. If I were called upon to state in a few words the essence of everything I was trying to say, both as a novelist and as a preacher, Frederick Buechner is a uh, uh, writer and also uh, he was a pastor, it would be something like this. Listen to your life. 
See it for the fathomless mystery that it is, in the boredom and pain of it no less than in the excitement and gladness. Touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it, because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments, and life itself is grace. This is a key moment in the life of the church. This is whatever you're going through, even if it's not, even if you don't care about what's happening in the church, there's something happening in your life right now. And you need to feel these things. You need to hear what God is saying because this is how God is working in your life. Know that Jesus is doing something in every situation. Know that He's doing something right now, here. Now consider how Jesus cares for His disciples. He cares for His disciples by putting them in a situation where they have to learn to trust in Him. Jesus knew that He was sending them into a scary situation. And now He tells them, Do not be afraid. What is up with that? Why would He do that? How else are they to respond? How else would you respond? And I think this is another uncomfortable truth of the Christian life. Jesus will send you into situations that He knows will be scary, that we don't really want to be in. But it's in these situations that he tells us to take heart. What does it mean for us to take heart? What would it it look like for us in our individual lives to take heart? What would it mean for our church to take heart? Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. What does it mean to take heart? The answer lies in the text. When you look at the text, you'll notice that the command does not stand alone. It's not take heart, period. There's something else that goes along with that statement. Take heart, because it is I. If we look at the Greek, the phrase it is I is actually um, translated from this Greek word, ego eimi, ego eimi. And this is translated as I am. I am. This is not a simple statement to inform the disciples that the figure walking on the water is Jesus himself, um, although that is true. It's far more than that. Ego, a me, I am. In the Old Testament, how does God reveal himself to his people? Exodus 3. God confronts Moses and he says, I am that I am. This is what theologians call the sacred tetragrammaton, Yahweh. Jesus is alluding to the God of the Old Testament, the God who rescued the Israelites from Egypt, the God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. Um, this is Jesus saying, making a claim, making a statement. He wants his people to know, I am, I am Jesus is the God of Psalm 77. Listen to these verses from that passage. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. This is God working in nature. This is God working in these terrifying moments 
It seems like he's not there, yet your footprints were unseen. Yet he was there. Yet he was there. So take heart, disciples. It is I. It is I. The basis of the command is the character of Jesus. The imperative in this passage is possible because the indicative is true. The command is take heart, be courageous, do not be afraid. And you can only be those things if I am is true. You can only be those things if Jesus really is who he says he is. So what does it mean for us to take heart, church? It means that we rest on the person of Jesus. It's not to muster up more strength or to suppress your emotions and soldier on. It's so easy to do that right now, isn't it? We feel anger and disappointment and sadness at whatever's happening in our lives. And don't you, for me at least, I'm an avoidant person. What I want to do is I want to suppress my emotions. And I just want to continue to go on. I'll soldier on. I'll go through the motions. And I'll do this for months and years. And then what happens? You learn to trust yourself. You learn to trust yourself if that's what you do. What you do. But to take heart means this, that we relinquish control. It means that we trust Jesus, that he will care for us, that he will protect us, and he will advocate for us, and he will lead us exactly where we need to be. We know we can trust him, because on the cross he proved that he was trustworthy. He took on our sin, and he gave us his righteousness. This is the gospel, as Pastor Michael spoke last week. This is true. The gospel is true. Because Jesus really does care. He really is trustworthy. He really will care for you. We are to see Jesus for who he is. The weight of Jesus' glory is greater than the weight of whatever we're going through. If ego me is true. So this is our first word, take heart. Our second word, come. So Jesus, he puts the disciples through this tiredness and through the rough waters in order to get, to get to this point. He lets them feel the fear of the sinking. He lets them think that they're left to themselves. He lets them feel the fear of seeing this mysterious figure on the water. And then he reveals himself. It is I. And Peter is shocked. He's shocked and then he's in awe. And if you've ever studied the character of Peter in the scriptures, um, one of the things he is, is he's, um, some people say that he's, um, that he's unreserved, that he is impetuous, that he does things without thinking them through. Um, But what we see here in this passage is that he has a fledgling faith in Jesus and he exercises it. The little faith that he does has, he uses it. And he understands that Jesus is Lord. That's how he dresses Jesus in this passage. He says, Lord, Lord, if it is you. Lord, if it is you. Call me onto the water. Ask me to come. And what is Peter doing? He's putting himself in a position where he's completely dependent on the Lord. He puts himself in a position where... If Jesus isn't there, he's going to sink. He steps out of the boat and into the water. 
at this point, he's completely dependent. He will drown if Jesus is not there. And in this next season of our church, we're going to have a lot of logistical and administrative and relational challenges. Um, To be honest, I am really worried about what we're going to do and not do as a church. I'm worried about how sustainable things will be with our resources. I am really worried, church. And maybe that's a good thing. Because maybe what God is doing in our church is He's stripping us. He's stripping me of the things I've taken for granted and relied on. What would our ministry be like? What would our church family look like if we were in a position where we're completely dependent on Jesus? What would it look like for us to truly confess that Jesus is Lord? What would it look like for us to be a church that trusts Him completely, completely to carry us through the difficult days that lie before us? As we move closer to Jesus, as He invites us to come, we will know that we can take heart. We can know, we will know that He's trustworthy. We will confess that Jesus is Lord. And our confession of the Lordship of Christ will not just be theoretical, but it's a reality that drives us. This is a reality that we have trusted in over the course of our 12 years of this church, that Jesus really is Lord. And in this coming season, we're going to have to do it again. We're going to have to do it again. Trust that Jesus is Lord, that he is in control, that he is trustworthy. Take heart. Approach Jesus. Do the things that he calls us to do, even if it seems like it's not safe, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's going to cause us distress. Because if Jesus really calls us to it, he will carry us. And the third word, the final word that Jesus speaks, why did you doubt? This is a rebuke. The faith of the disciples was inadequate. The faith of Peter was not, wasn't inauthentic, but it was incomplete. Why did you doubt? Oh, you of little faith. The word for doubt in this passage is this Greek word, adististos. Adististos. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. But it's translated, um, it means to have a divided mind or loyalty. To have a divided mind or loyalty. Peter knew that Jesus was right there in front of him. And he knew, at least intellectually, that Jesus is the Lord of the wind and the waves. Peter walks toward Jesus, and the first few steps, you can imagine how awesome it must have been. I'm walking on water. But then he feels the winds. He feels and sees the waves lapping at his feet. And he notices the sea is still angry. The wind is still blowing. And he feels the fear again. He had his eyes fixed on Jesus as he stepped out of the boat and onto the water. And he too walked on water. But then he sank. Because the situation around him divided his mind. This is what doubt is. The division of your mind and your loyalty. It's taking your focus off the person in front of you. 
and this is the truth we need as a church right now, that it's not the situation around us that's the biggest thing. It's Christ before us. Christ before us, not the situation around us. This is why it's so important, not just to confess that Jesus is Lord, but to trust and live out the fact that Jesus really is Lord. So Jesus sees Peter sinking. He reaches out for him because that's what Jesus does. He rescues his people. He cares for his people. And this is the experience of the disciples. After this happens, Peter and Jesus go back on the boat. And the text tells us that the wind and the waves, they calm down. And again, things are still. These are the three words of Jesus. Take heart. Come. And why do you doubt? And the disciples, they too have a word once they experience this. The text tells us that they worshipped And what do they say? Truly you are the Son of God. Truly you are the Son of God. So what is our word to Jesus? What will be our response in the coming weeks and months? Indelible Grace Church, if we do not come out of this season as more fervent worshipers of Jesus, then we have really messed up. It will be really sad for us to see our friends leave this church. It will be concerning as we watch our finances dwindle. It will be really hard to watch our ministries struggle. It will be difficult to process the anger and the sadness and the disappointment. But all these things pale in comparison to Jesus not being worshipped. Do you hear me? This is why we exist as a church. Because if that is not our heart in this coming season, then what are we doing? Why are we here? What do we really want? What do we really want? I hope that you want more than a stable church. I hope you want more than a good preacher or elders. I hope you want more than a good kids ministry. What matters most is that you worship Jesus. I really mean it. It's okay if our church folds one day. Not a big deal. It's a really big deal if you don't worship Jesus. So may God shape us into a people who will learn more and more about Jesus. May we be a people that are sensitive to the promptings of the Spirit. May we submit to the will of the fathers. To to the Father, not our fathers. May we submit to the will of God the Father. Compare the fear of the disciples in the first story when Jesus calms a storm to uh, what is their confession? They say, who is this man? This is John 4. Who is this man? But now in two episodes later, after the feeding of the 5,000 and after Jesus walks on water, their confession goes from who is this man to truly you are the son of God. It took time for the disciples to realize the truth of who Jesus is. And even then, they had only scratched the surface. And God is going to use our circumstances to reveal himself to us. Little by little, from one degree of glory to another, we will be shaped into a people, hopefully, that will worship Jesus more fervently.
God uses circumstances in this church, in our lives, in this world to reveal himself to us. We will grow personally. You will, your character will change. Your love for people, your patience, your graciousness, your kindness, your compassion, all these things, God will do these things, but they are secondary to your growth as a worshiper of Jesus. This is what really matters to us in Double Grace Church. See it through this season. Listen to what Jesus is saying to us. Take heart. Listen to him. Learn to not trust yourself. Learn to doubt yourself. But learn to trust Jesus. Learn to trust Jesus. What will we learn in this lesson, in this season? What will we learn when it seems like God is continuing to batter us? What are we going to think of when we experience these things? We're to think not of the storm, but of the one who walks toward us in the storm. And in the coming days and weeks and months, our faith will be given an opportunity to live and breathe. May this be true of us. May we take heart. May we move toward Jesus. May we grow more confident in him. May we give our complete loyalty to Christ the Lord. May we trust him and may we worship him. May we worship him. Will you pray with me? Uh, Lord Jesus, we um, we have to express our disappointment at ourselves. When we look at our own hearts and our own lives, we see how full of doubt we are. We see how divided our loyalties and our minds are. But I pray that we would not doubt. That we would not doubt that you are the Lord that you are the Lord, that this is true, that you are, I am, and may our confidence rest in you. God, teach us to trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.